So we are now on Sutra 136. We're really just sort of whipping right through this, aren't we? Um, He says otherwise. (laughs) He's making a long list of all the different ways in which you can calm the mind. Calmness comes by concentrating on the supreme, ever-blissful light within. And we've been concentrating on subtle sense perceptions and all sorts of things. Swami starts this by saying, I've already covered this in the one before. And so what he adds to this is just this appreciation of light and sound as being our fundamental nature. You know, it's a very helpful thing when we're meditating um, to try, I don't exactly try to, how to say this, you, you medit- what you're meditating on, this is also the sutra before, is you're meditating on an internal reality that's already yours. We somehow, because we're not always seeing the light or we're not always hearing the om, we have the feeling that we're reaching out for something. And so the more we can um, integrate what Swamiji is saying here, that om is the manifestation of everything in creation, and we are, we are made of no other substance than that. So what we are discovering is is our own nature rather than something that's shining down upon us. It's a subtle point, but it sometimes helps when we're trying to listen or we're trying to look. If we, if we, in, if we have it even more interior, I can't really say it better than that. Then he goes through this long story that he's told in a few other places about the tip of the nose versus the origin point of the nose. I don't think he's talking to us in this one. I think he has encountered that discussion in India and he was writing this to put the question to rest forever. I mean, because he seriously talks about actually having been seriously challenged by another prominent spiritual teacher whose name he doesn't say here, and I won't say it either since he didn't, who actually argued the point. And um, in, in, sometimes in India people argue details with you they argue meanings of words and they, they sort of get involved in, in pinning down uh, especially things that relate to Sanskrit and exactly what this means and exactly what that tradition was. So I think Swami just wanted to take this particular discussion and drive it underground where the light don't shine and it just would never come up again, which I think he did very effectively, so I'm not going to bother because for most of us, it's just too self-evident. Sri Yukteswar says, as he says, Swamiji says, spiritual path is hard enough without trying to do it cross-eyed. And that sort of is enough for us. <laughs> Sri Yukteswar was a lot of fun. Hare Krishna Ghosh, who um, grew up, of course, in the home where Master had lived, and his grandfather, Master's father, um, was a guru bhai of Sri Yukteswar. So Sri Yukteswar used to often come to Four Garpar Road to visit the family because he would come to visit his father. And uh, Hare Krishna says that he was, he was quite a humorous man, actually. And he actually also related in a very lighthearted and fun way with the children. He often had candies in his pockets and he would make the children find them. And uh, he, he wasn't, you know, we have this very uh, austere thought in our mind, but all masters are joyful. And so even though he could be stern, that doesn't mean that he wasn't the same as others. I mean, even um, Richard Wright, you know, talks about how he used to sit and play with his nose, play through the end of his nose, and about how his laughter would ring out, and the whole ashram would just go into delight. So even just that, the spiritual path is hard enough without trying to do it cross-eyed, is another way to just put that whole controversy to rest, but in a way that you can't forget. Whenever all of us who teach meditation one always have to remind people of that, exactly. Because when people say the spiritual eye, they kind of roll their back, eyes back into their head. You know, that's, why, that's why the feeling of going out is, is there. Because we do. We, it's not like we leave our bodies, you see. It's that we expand from them. We, instead of instead of being confined by the identification with the ego, which binds us to this little physical form, when we're looking at the spiritual eye, we're 
we're re- relaxing that periphery. Among the other reasons why the word relaxation is such a powerful word in meditation is because what we're fundamentally relaxing is the grip uh, that we have on ourselves. You know, people live a lot with a grip on themselves. One of the factors about spiritually advanced people is the fact that they are just so free. I remember in a certain circumstance many years ago, many, many years ago, Swami just made a little comment. He was comparing himself to someone else. He was saying, he, the phrase was, I'm used to going with my heart, is how he put it, and so-and-so is not accustomed to that. In other words, there was a tremendous courage when Swami felt something. He just never felt any need to hold back. You know, we hold back out of attachment and fear. We're, we're attached or we're, we're fearful, we're attached to certain outcomes. And we're fearful about those outcomes not happening. You know, what if I really open myself and people don't respond in the right way? What if I say something stupid? What if I write a song and somebody tells me it's terrible? You know, just like all of the different ways in which we hold back because we're afraid of being hurt. But if you're not afraid of being hurt, if you're not afraid of anything, then there's simply no reason at all to hold back, ever. And I, one of the lines of Swami's song that I always have liked, it's in the song, Go On Alone, of course, Give life your heart, bless everything that's grown, fear not the loving, all this world's your own. It's such a, those are powerful words that have always stayed in, with me. Of all his songs, I think that's the lines that come back to me more often. Give life your heart, bless everything that's grown, fear not the loving. And that's the, that's the power. And that's when we are able to do that, then, then the ego's grip loosens and the, it's sort of like the natural expansiveness of our own aura. Our aura is always trying to become infinite. Our, our nature is always trying to become infinite and we're always trying to constrain it. I've shared with you before, but it was really quite a moment. You know, sometimes we have divine moments that just kind of come in an instant and then they fade away. But they're, when they come, they really are there. I was walking up the stairs in apartment 108 when I lived there. And the concept of fear crossed my mind. And I, I tried, I, I just, I didn't try anything. It just crossed my mind that Master was afraid of nothing. Of course, he was afraid of nothing because he was one with everything. I mean, the concept of fear requires duality. I mean, to be afraid of something, there has to be something else other. I mean, there have to be two for there to be fear. Master was uh, omnipresent, and therefore there was no possibility of fear. And, and I just felt for just an instant, I, I thought then, what would it be like to have absolutely no fear? And then for just a moment, it's sort of like it cracked and I stepped into that. I mean, it's like for the space of one step. But it just, it, I crossed into it and I, again, I realized, well, we have a ways to go, don't we? You know, from infinity. I don't, I don't mean that in a depressing way. It's a cheerful thought, really. But, but when we're sitting and meditating and trying to open ourselves to receive, um, I have shared with you also before, but it, it bears repeating in this context. When I was in seclusion once, I recognized that what I was holding on to, what I was attached to, was actually a lot of negatives. I was holding on to angers and resentments and disappointments. And not not this lifetime, but, but just a kind of generic... Um, Samskar in my heart from God knows how many times. I mean, we just, if you just look around just with a handful of people you know and think how many people are disappointed deeply about something or another. Unrequited love, um, children that go off the path, go off the path of righteousness and cause heartbreak to their mothers parents who never loved you the way you should have been loved, um, creative dreams that never find fruition. You know, it's, it's, really, it's really quite something. I was 
I'm old enough now that I've begun to sort of see how these terrible patterns set in. Even just in small ways. I was actually talking with some friends recently. I find myself in this position, which all of you know, that Swamiji redirected me a little more than a year ago from the point of view of not defining my life so completely by this colony. I've always felt, um, it's never been a burden, but I've always felt it was a responsibility. And it's been a a very um, enjoyable challenge to remain interested in the same thing. I mean, the same essential context and to not not find inspiration from starting over somewhere else, which uh, is, is one way you do it. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not like you have to stick with the same thing. I, I always thought, David being Aries and me being Gemini, that we would found a whole bunch of colonies. So it was, has been an increasing surprise to me that we only actually started one. Um, so it's been a fabulous challenge to remain fresh and enthusiastic and creative without starting over. Um, but then in June, he requested me to basically define my community as the world. Um, it hasn't, you know, I'm, I now have more outward-looking energy, and I'm going away again for another eight weeks, and I never would have considered that until he had, if he hadn't pushed me. But I've really liked living here, and I've really enjoyed my relationships, and I've really enjoyed the way we've all worked together. I've enjoyed working in really close partnership with David. And this, you know, really puts us doing two completely different things. Swamiji asked David if he wanted to travel around the world with me. He said, I'll do anything you ask me to, sir. But no, it doesn't particularly interest me. (laughs) And Swami said, well, somebody has to keep this place going. And and then he also said, just to finish the sentence... You know, I think it's I think it's an appropriate assignment for you. He didn't see any reason for David to shift where he saw a lot of reason for me to. Just felt that I had something else that I had to finish before I died. But I I was thinking, just talking to friends, sort of like, I see why people, as you get older, you want things, you want to go back to the parts the parts that really worked. I remember asking my mother once what the happiest time of her life was. She said, when all you children were small. She just loved being a mother of young children. And so she did it for a while, and unfortunately we didn't produce a passel of grandchildren, so she didn't get to do it another time. But it's just like, that's how people are. It, it, something was good, and then you live in the memory of it. Or something was bad, and you live in the attachment to it. And that's why it takes so many lifetimes to uh, get liberated. You know, it, this, this whole necessity to stay in the moment is it has so many different dimensions and one of it is to find complete satisfaction in the moment I mean whatever it is that you're doing now give life your heart <laughs> give it completely because uh, there's no there's no other reality otherwise you're 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 divided up all over the map i know when david and i first moved here from Ananda Village, which of course now was such a long time ago, immediately I started training myself not to call the village home. I'd lived there for 16 years. I mean, Swamiji was still there. It was everything to me. But we we just really trained ourselves not to call it home. And the house that we had lived in, that was our house, that we started calling it very conscientiously, the Crystal Hermitage Guest House, you know, all of that was very a very deliberate action because otherwise you're never anywhere. You're always in a lot of different places. And when you have people that you love all over the world, it's, it's, a, it's a very serious discipline to expand your consciousness and um, have the freedom to be whatever it is. And that doesn't mean you're unfeeling or unconnected, but... You're, you're not defined. Master said that when I'm with my friends, I'm with them completely. And when I'm separated from them, I never miss them, is how he put it. Be, well, I mean, what, what could he be saying? He was never separated. 
But still, he was setting he was setting an example for us. In other words, I don't pine for what isn't here. That's the longing and regret. That's what makes you have to reincarnate. But going all the way back to what I was saying about meditating, I could just feel that holding on um, to the pain of past life experiences, just because it, it was unresolved. You know, you, you die in disappointment and there you are. It's, it it hasn't, doesn't solve itself. If you, if you have allowed yourself to become disappointed or sad or afraid or all of those things, and you die, those are just the impressions that are still in your heart. But you see, what they do is they bind you to a small definition. That's what I felt when I was trying to meditate. I was trying to receive a larger self-definition, but I had bound myself to a smaller self-definition, so there wasn't room. Only, only so much could reach me because I was bound to these other feelings. It was very, it was very strange, actually. It's the only way I can describe it. That's why I often refer to it. To just feel how powerful. When I, um, when I was talking once about um, a, a, a period of a couple of years that I went through where um, I'm, not, I'm not inclined to panic attacks. That's just not my nature. But there was a certain dynamic that would set itself up. And when I was traveling with David, if we were in the airport and he would go away from me, and he and I wouldn't know when he was coming back. I actually became agitated way beyond anything normal. And we worked it out. It wasn't loony. I mean, he's not going to miss a plane. He's not that stupid. But still, so my you know, he, it took him a long time to realize I was serious because it was just so, such a loopy way to feel. But when I said that in a satsang once, a woman in the room who, who feels herself to be very psychic comes up to me and tells me this story of how she saw me as a little girl, you know, abandoned, whose father, my mother died and my father couldn't take care of me, so he took me off a few cities away on a train and just left me at the train station. And, that's it. and then I had to fend for myself for that whole incarnation. All I can say is, it, I don't feel at ease when I hear that story. You know, I, I, there's a part of me that actually goes there. So true or not... Interesting, here's the other part of it, though. In the moment that she said that to me, I had, two, I had two simultaneous intuitions besides a really creeped out feeling of terror. Um, was that, that was a very difficult lifetime and a very important one that I learned things that have been extremely important for me. And also that certain number of flaws in my character were formed in that. A certain um, unwillingness, um, just a toughness that doesn't always serve me. But quite apart from whether it's true or not, you know, these things are interesting, but I feel like if they're apocryphal, the, the literalness of them is less important than, than what, they may, what they may illustrate for you about your character. And if that's helpful to you, the literalness of it isn't true. But once again, it was like it, what that story did for me, even, even it reinforced the other experience. You just can't, you can't take freedom for granted. You just don't know what's inside of you. And, and you have to be very humble about this. You have to have a lot of humility because there's a, we're just working with a lot below the surface that we don't know about. And, and when Swamiji commented once that his, that there, essentially what he said was that there was nothing in his subconscious. That, that it was just clear. That, that, in other words, all of these things have just been resolved. And that's why Swami can stand up and he would talk about, oh yes, I had Shanti in my vrittis. I Meaning, Swami interpreted that to me and he had Sabhakalpa Samadhi. And then I argued with my guru. You, you would think that would either be a, a, a point of tremendous embarrassment or such an anguishing revelation or just something. But Swami would just say it so casually. And then after that, we went out for coffee. It's just like, I mean, he, he gave it, he gave it uh, gravitas, but there was no, um, no uh, aberration in the f- smooth flow of his consciousness when he talked about it. He could just talk about it. It was just, I mean, Swamiji talked about many, many things about himself and even and other people too, just with that same relaxed energy. 
because why would I want to hold on to it? And sometimes people would get upset because he would just say things casually about someone else. He would just sort of look like, what are we trying to protect here? You know, everybody has this great sense of privacy and confidentiality. These are, these are words from psychology. These are not words from the spiritual path. The, the psychological community has this enormous code of how everybody has to be protected. But the spiritual path doesn't have that code. And sometimes people just kind of carry that in, a kind of what I would call unthinking liberalism. They just carry it right into the ashram and are slightly outraged if the ashram doesn't respect it. I'm not saying that people should humiliate one another and uh, uh, not respect each other's privacy. That would be folly. But Swamiji sometimes judiciously did not respect our privacy because he saw no reason to. When he saw a reason to, he always did. He, could, he would die before he would reveal a secret if it wasn't appropriate to do so. But if it was just people being too delicate, he would just, he just would ignore it. Why, why should he honor such a thing? And he was very, very nice to us. We were talking once, toward the end of his life, the last couple of years, especially the last year or so, he became very direct. I mean, just really direct. He just said what he did. Did I mean, it took him, I think really, it took so much effort for him to communicate it all, just to stay in that body, to keep it going. He just didn't have the margin to be extremely delicate with us. And I was joking with Shivani, or I'm not, I think it was Shivani, but I'm not sure who I was talking to. I said, he could have been this way with us all along. You know, he could have, he could have been this kind of a teacher for the last 40 years, and we would have just have had to take it, you know, he spoiled us rotten. So now when he's not really the soul of graciousness, we're all sort of like um, startled. But uh, it's sort of like we, we had it good. He said, he said once to us, he said, you have no idea how hard I work to make it clear to you. He said, Master never, he went like this, Master never bothered. He just went like this. Just a word, sometimes a glance, and then he would just leave it to you to figure out. And Swami said, I bend over backwards to explain things to you. You have no idea how easy you have it. But, you know, Master just, he made you rise to his, his level. And he did not spend a lot of time um, working it out for you. He just put, put it forward and then you were expected to find it. That's why Swamiji will tell you just, you know, one phrase of Master, just one phrase that he's worked on for a really long time. And and further and further levels of it are revealed each time. Very, very interesting. Any thoughts or questions? That's all about the next sutra that I'm talking about. Yes, Sarah? So what if people who were with Master didn't get it from what this, you know, business, then they were just too bad and they were out of there or what do you think (laughs) (laughs) well master helped you in the way that you needed to be helped and many people did not have the karma to be with master because it was too hard and Swamiji himself said many came and went they were able to be with master for a little while and no they couldn't take it and they didn't get what they wanted and so they did go away but that's no I mean you're never lost my devotee is never lost you just get as far as you can get but, but that's true. We all imagine that we would have just thrived in Master's company, but not necessarily at all. It may have been just not suited for us because he, he couldn't. It's Swamiji tells, I mean, he just, he was, he, was, he was what he needed to be. It's impossible to imagine. You look at the pictures of him, of that face, and you just try to, and you see sometimes the movies of him, it's just hard to imagine what that spirit was like walking around, what it would have been like. Uh. I heard a story several people told me about Swami in a satsang way back when. And they were talking about Yogananda and whether you would stay with Yogananda. And he looked at each individual and said, you wouldn't have stayed, you wouldn't have stayed. And he named almost everyone there at the satsang. <laughs> Do I remember that? Maybe you saw 
I've heard him talk like that, but I don't remember him actually pointing to people. And I remember it in the reverse, when he's, he praised Prakash, Master would have liked Prakash. That was when Prakash every day was cutting another step in the hillside of Crystal Hermitage so that Swamiji could walk downstairs instead of having to just slip down the hill. And every day we'd come and Prakash would cut another step. And that's when Swami said, Master would have liked Prakash. You know, just that kind of, I'm not going to quit willpower. I've set my mind, I'm going to do it. But I, have, I did hear him say on more than one occasion that various of us or kind of globally us's um, I mean even that I'm, you know I make it so much easier for you he told me that I would never have made it at SRF he didn't say I wouldn't have made it with master he said I wouldn't have even been quote a good church member <laughs> I said I take that as a compliment did you intend it that way what he meant was that in the context was that I just I just I'm so independent in the way I think. And I'm so fixed in my own ideas, I just would not cooperate just because I was supposed to. I would only cooperate if I wanted to, or if I felt persuaded to. And that wouldn't have gone over big. I've been thrown out of a lot of places, I think. Now, let's see that little nine-year-old girl, however old she was when she got left at the train station. She made it on her own. And that's, that's the best and the worst. Everything is like that. You see, it's so interesting. You, you, bad things happen to you and as a consequence you develop a certain power because you have to survive but then if it's a power in reaction to a pain then it's not balanced and then you have to back up and, and find out you know why am I so, always so insistent on doing it my own way well because I had no choice for it at a certain point but are those conditions are those the conditions of my present life or is that just my habit from what happened to me before? You see how we confine ourselves? We define ourselves by the things that happened and we just keep going and we don't notice that it's different now. It's just a lot of times when people come into Ananda, they have, we have so many habits and we just don't notice that it's different. And, and relating to the community is one of them realizing that we really are a community and we really can be spiritual with each other. Jyotish wrote, I don't know if you all, you all must be on that email list. If you're not, we have to figure out how to get you on it. A touch of light. Jyotish and Davy alternate each week and send a, a, a short letter out. They're wonderful, absolutely wonderful. It was a really inspired idea. The last one that Jyotish sent, he talked about our, the spiritual DNA of Master's family. I think that's how he phrased it. And he went through... The last point was, was one you'll never forget. A lot of people at Ananda are like good creme brulee, kind of crusty on the top, but soft and sweet inside. <laughs> I thought that was really good. I'll never forget that. But the other thing he said was that, and it's sort of you have to understand it in the right way, Ananda, the Ananda family, part of our DNA, is that, well, as, as Joseph said, we're not hermits. We are a family and we are doing it together. That doesn't mean in any way that self-realization is not an individual effort. But we're, we are doing it together. And, and that is part of how we progress spiritually, is that we actually have these relationships. And uh, Swami writes this in The Path. He writes about how these great spiritual families form around these great spiritual people. And he, he says, over time we perfect our relationship not only with God, but also with each other. And perfecting those relationships is not, is not the same as the kind of social relationships uh, that people imagine when you think of being in a group, where you're, you know, jovial ego to jovial ego. But Jyotish wrote, and it's true, he said, in all the years that he's been part of Ananda, which is basically as long as there's been an Ananda, only Swamiji himself had been there longer, and and there was no Ananda. (laughs) Swamiji's always been there. Um, He said he's only met a couple of people who... He said he's never met a a, a true hermit as part of our family. He said there were a few that tried to be, but he never found them to be completely balanced. And that, now, that doesn't mean that people are social. You have to really hear that in the right way. 
but we need each other, is what he's actually saying. What he was actually saying is that people for whom, who could live outside the company of other people and actually thrive. That's what he was really saying. That, that all of us, at, we really need each other in our relationships and our service. And all of that is not incidental to our spiritual life. It's integral to it. And give life your heart. Learning to love. I mean, it's easy to love in the abstract. It's a whole lot more difficult to do it when there's actually somebody at the other end of the wire (laughs) who's um, insisting on being themselves instead of being just an extension of your own idea of what they ought to be, which would make life so much easier. (laughs) Yes? Okay, question? Mm -hmm. Is it possible to get the same level of help that you would from the guru when he's not in the body versus being his disciple wise. I asked Swamiji, Master said, I am I know every single thought that you think. That's how Master said to Swami. I said to Sir I said, Sir, is that still true? Swami looked at me just in astonishment and said, Of course. Just like that. Of course. Time and space is absolutely no obstacle. In fact Swami once said to us that he thought we had it easier because we never knew Master when he was walking around. He said it was so confusing having him walk around and be a person and then also realize that he was living inside and that his consciousness was infinite. Swamiji said often he just, it just made him dizzy. He just couldn't get his, he just couldn't figure out what to do with all of that. And he, he, that's when he said, for some, it's easier almost, he said, if you never had that contradiction. To those who think me near, I will be near. Now, of course and this is where the family comes in, and this is this one. Otherwise, also, this is sutra number 137, since I'm just doing it, let's go there. Otherwise, also, by attunement with the mind of an enlightened being, one who is completely free from all attachment to the senses. There's a saying in the ancient scriptures, even a moment in the company of the saint will be your raft over the ocean of delusion. The great danger of attuning when the person is not there to correct you is that you will make it up and that you will end up um, false notions. I mean, Patanjali talks about this at different point. You'll get false notions or you'll mistake fantasy for reality. Hallucinations is a step beyond even false notions, but you get false notions in your head and there's no one to correct you. But the idea that the only one who can correct you is the physical person of the enlightened being is what leads to the false notion, which brings me back to the DNA of the community and the family. Um, It's extremely important to be connected and to listen. And it's a very, very fine line because, you know, we don't have absolute faith in one another. I mean, after all my years with Swamiji, if he and I disagreed, the, you know, I was wrong. I was always wrong. And I don't mean that I was always wrong in some kind of like this kind of sense, but I just was always wrong. It just invariably turned out that I was wrong. So it wasn't, it wasn't a lot of trouble for me to sort of imagine that this time too I'll turn out to be wrong. He himself said to me, oh, Ashi, you always agree with me in the end. Just stop arguing. You know, and I just I took that very seriously, and I realized, in fact, I always did, because he would offer something that was just beyond what I could comprehend, and I would respond too fast, and just come back with my present level of reality, and then he would refuse to budge, and then I would calm down and focus on it and tune in, and he was always right. However, you know, many of us are often right, so we have to work cooperatively. That's why, our, oh, that's why our obedience in this family is cooperative, which is that you have to participate, but you also have to listen. And you have to cultivate relationships with people where you can practice cooperative obedience. It's extremely important. And, and be willing. It's, it's such a fine line, though, because sometimes people really don't understand you. And sometimes you really have just captured a thread that nobody else sees. It really does happen. 
so you have to just keep experimenting and be, and be willing to be wrong a lot of times. Once I went forward with this project and it was a disaster. Swami was, I loved it. This is, oh, there's many favorite things he said to me, but this one really was way up there. Oh yes, he said, whenever your ego gets involved, you make terrible decisions. <laughs> Just, and every so, and I, I've seen it. When I get sort of wrapped up and just get swept away. It wasn't ego so much in the sense of self-importance. It's just I wasn't listening. I was just hearing myself and following myself. You make terrible decisions, he said. And so I did. I planned out this whole thing, and I just was off from the start. And just you just have to have, make those mistakes a lot of times. But we've all experienced and this for me has been a practice, you know, because I was never with Master, I didn't quite have as, as, as solid a way to test the presence of a non-present person. But having been with Swamiji so long, it's just startling to me how present he is. And I mean, not quite as I was saying to a friend, he's not always sitting in the chair in front of you. It's not quite as easy as being able to write him an email and get an answer. But thankfully, he is sitting in the chair in front of us a lot of the time. And so that experience um, makes it even more powerful to me, the fact that time and space is no obstacle. Just It's, it's entirely a question of our um, purity of heart. It's just why we have to work on it all. But here he's saying attunement with the mind of an enlightened being. And then he, this, is, this is a really important sutra. The most important thing on the spiritual path is to have a true, true guru. And you simply cannot lift yourself up without that energy. It's just the... Um, well, I guess on Sunday I was talking about Surrender. And I was talking about what it is that we have to surrender. We have to surrender this habit of just... Um, and see, it's very tricky because in order to get onto the spiritual path, you have to develop that kind of strong, independent confidence. Because nothing in our environment supports this, really. I mean, we live in a bubble here, but nothing in the bigger society supports the idea that you would turn your back on, on that reality and make this the primary reality, even if you still participate on both sides, you just you flip the whole thing around. The inner reality comes first, the outer reality is an expression of that. And so there has to be a very strong-minded independence to get to that point. And that very strong-minded independence is your friend it's, it's the best thing about you and it gets you to, to this point. So then this, this nuance of difference, of attunement, and, and attunement is a, a better word to start with, I think, than surrender, really. Because attunement is, is the, the constant um, just checking in and asking what the feeling is and where is it coming from and, and the simple constant asking to be guided even in the smallest ways, not to the point where you're paralyzed unless you know whether you're supposed to have the Swiss cheese or the Gouda cheese. You know, it's, it's not like that sort of thing, although it is also that. It's, it's just this constant referring everything back. And part of it is, is very... Um, it's not woo-woo. <laughs> it's, it's very grounded. It's just, what are my attitudes in this moment? Swami says here, um, none of us can act except as instruments. If we behave wickedly, which is an interesting word, wickedly, we open ourselves to become instruments of Satan. If we behave kindly and generously toward others, we become instruments of divine grace. So sometimes we get carried away and think this is really, really hard. And, and, and we're always obsessing about whether or not we're in tune or not. But in many ways, it's actually very simple. You know, what am I doing? Who am I protecting? Who am I caring for? What am I thinking? 
and it, and it's also subtle, um, especially when we were talking as we were this morning about creativity and just what am I going to be a channel for? And there's no, you don't get there except just by making an effort, correcting yourself, making an effort, correcting yourself, making an effort. And you just do it day after day, year after year, until, and courageously and boldly, and you make huge mistakes, and then you just gradually get better at it. And there's really no substitute. But the, this particular sutra, you know, by attunement with the mind of an enlightened being, to really recognize, which really I don't know how to explain it, it's, it's not, it, it can't really be explained, but once you feel it, you just know it. You just realize there's a flow of, of divine energy, and when I'm in it, everything is terrific. And when I'm not, it's awful. And you just keep going like that until you realize where it is. Swamiji was very bold with this. He... He has that story which he tells in a place called Ananda, and in a place called Ananda has another name now, but the book about the story of him getting expelled from SRF. And I'm not, I can't remember right at this moment whether it's in that book. Yeah, I think he wrote it into the book. But for many years he told us that story over and over again about finding that land, getting Nehru to approve it, all the effort he had to do, and how in the end SRF wouldn't accept it and then threw him out and on and on. He told the story for 15 or 20 years. Shivani and I were talking about this recently. And then one day he added something to it, which was when he started that project to get that land, he didn't really feel Master uh, giving him the go-ahead. But he didn't know what else to do, and it seemed like a reasonable thing to do, and he wasn't going to do nothing, so he went forward on it. And he also then he added, and I thought it would be a good experiment to find out what would happen. And for every other reason, I thought, what courage. I just thought it would be a good experiment. Well, this is how it feels. I mean, so many people would have just frozen and just waited. No, he just, he needed to do something, and this seemed reasonable. And he didn't have that clear sense of master saying yes, but Master wasn't saying no, so he just thought he'd try it and see what would happen. Well, he learned. I mean, afterwards he said he felt that Master didn't bless it because Master knew what was going to happen. And I mean, I think it sort of helps, it just was helpful to Swami in many ways. Very interesting, isn't it? But we just have to keep trying. You know, I'm not, it's, it's not easy to say Master wants me to do this. Sometimes you really do feel that this is just what you're supposed to do and there's just no, no way around it. But sometimes you're just affirming it and I think it's better to save that declaration for the times when you really know and the rest of the time say, I'm doing my best to be in tune. In, in the book I wrote about Swamiji, there's more than one story like this, but one particular one. This woman was facing a very difficult decision and it was an either-or, there was no in between, she said to Swamiji, I keep praying to Master, but I don't get an answer. And Swamiji's response was, Master is pleased merely because you've asked him, you can do either one. It's because a lot of times we think that our karma is so refined that really this choice or that choice when really doesn't matter. We could do lots of different things and it would all be equal. Um, but the main thing that matters is that we're turning that way. So that, that's why, I mean, that's part of the ways in which you just make this practical and you don't have to give in to the idea to declare something when it just may not be true. You hope it's true. You hope you're doing the right thing. You're sincerely trying to. And we'll see how it turns out, won't we? And we'll all learn something along the way. And we can't really lose because as long as we're sincere, it'll all work out. Whether it works out effortlessly or not, it'll still work out. Something always happens. <laughs> well, any thoughts or questions on that? Okay, let's take a little break then. Okay, did you have a question? <laughs> <laughs> 
I did. So I've thought about this line just that you just mentioned about Swami saying that it's probably easier to not have interacted with Masana's body. And, uh, but I don't want to misquote Swamiji, but yes, <laughs> that there was a certain resolution. There was a certain advantage. You had to, a contradiction that you had to resolve if you were there when he was there physically. I, I take it to mean as, uh, as not tying Master to his personality or the person he was and trying to understand what was coming through the infinite consciousness and not get confused between the two. I, I don't actually think that is what Swamiji meant. What he meant more was just, well, let me, let me sort of try to say that. I was, I, several things were coming together in my mind. Um, Swamiji, I remember at a certain point, saying to us that he realized that every aspect of Master's incarnation was important, that his personality and the way he acted in the world, all of that was, all of it, was a divine teaching that you really couldn't separate his personality, so to speak, from his divinity because his personality was an expression of his divinity and the personality, because it was closer to the reality that we live in, had a lot to teach us about uh, about how to follow the same route back. He said it was just simply the fact that to get the idea of omnipresence and infinity when he was next door having dinner. That's how Swami put it. How could he just be sitting there having dinner and be just mm-hmm. as much inside of me as he is inside of himself? So it wasn't the way he expressed himself because Swamiji just said everything about the way he expressed himself was so ideal. He was such an ideal human that he, he really helped, helped Swamiji and all of us understand how to behave and, and, and knowing how to behave is knowing requires consciousness and discipline and, and, that, and it's, an, it's an accessible art form to know how to behave and, and so we can cultivate our, our higher skills by learning to behave does that make sense? it does I, I also remember reading a line in God Alone the book by Gyanmath yeah and I hope I'm not saying this wrong, but this is what I remember the words to be. I think she says, the guru comes through the physical plane only as much as I come through this letter. Uh-huh. And uh, I hope I'm saying this right. Uh-huh. But uh, it was, it made me question and maybe a little confused about what I'm tuning into. Because some at some level, we are all tuning in and trying to... Uh, seek inspiration from Master's life and the 52 years he spent on this planet and we look at his photos, we look into his eyes and those are all aspects of, uh, those are all ways in which I attempt to attune myself but it also at times confuses me if there's, if that's not what attuning Now here I think is the way to resolve that and here I think is what Gyanamata meant by that. I've also been reading also God Alone again, which is just one of the most fabulous books ever. You know, it's just an amazing, amazing book and well worth just reading over and over again. It's like sentence by sentence. Um, when I, You may remember when Swami died and I told you I asked him to show it to me from his point of view. And I talked about the whole vastness of the ocean and that the whole incarnation that I knew as Kriyananda was this this like tiny little cover that came up and opened about that far like a little trap door on the surface. But what I experienced was the, was the height of that trap door because I, I sat over here on the surface and that was my reality. But from his point of view, it was this tiny little trap door through which all of that, the rest of his reality could flow. And therefore, when he relinquished the body, it was just this, the tiniest change in his reality. So I think what Sister Gyanamata was trying to get us to say was not that there, that we were under, but just she wanted us to realize how much there was behind the little facade we were looking at. She was also, and of course, because these were mostly letters, um, there was a strong inclination among some of the people who were with Master to not understand 
what he was a manifestation of, but merely to um, hold him in that reality. And this, this has been Swamiji's profound and total complaint about what happened to Master's work after Master died, that the people involved in it defined Master's work so much by the body they could see. So I think Gyanamata was wanting them to really understand the power and the magnitude of this force. But we have to enter it where we can. And if we spin our heads too much about worrying about or trying to discern this or that, I think we should uh, just go where the heart goes very naturally. In Gyanamata's letters, there's uh, a little poem that she wrote to Master. I am but a simple maid, foolish and unheeding, yet I will go unafraid where my heart is leading. I've always just loved that. I think I've changed a word or two, but the sense of it is perfect. So just wherever your heart is drawn, and everybody's different. You know, uh, some people are more impersonal, and it's just the way they... They don't get involved as involved in the details. But if you love Master and are drawn to him for any aspect of his nature, he'll take care of the rest of it. The rest of us will follow. If we, if we stand back and analyze and worry about it, nothing good will come of it. The chances, I mean, we just, we just won't be, we won't be misled. And if, it, if it's his beautiful eyes and the sound of his voice or... Uh, or just the whatever it might be, just go, yeah, and it'll it'll fix itself. But if you hold back for fear of oh I need to do this instead of this, you're just caught up in concepts. I mean, that it, it's funny. I I think just my own just my own personal karma. On, the, on one hand, there's all these contradictory things. We trust ourselves and then we recognize the foolishness of our own thoughts simultaneously. It's like um, so much of what we're talking about, we have the foggiest idea what we're talking about. Just like we're, we like so, we're so completely, I mean, Gyanamanta knew what she was talking about, but I don't know what I'm talking about. So, I'm, I'm not going to make it worse by I'm taking a whole bunch of concepts that I really don't know what they're about and then like making up stories for myself about them. I just figure whatever it is is good. If it's, if it's expanding me and moving me forward, I, 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 I think, I mean, there's a... It doesn't organize itself orderly. It's It's sloppy. It just, you just you make progress in a kind of sloppy way because it's not happening on the level that you think it's happening and that's where, where this attunement counts. When I was um, here in Palo Alto, which would have, of course, been a lot of years after I started the path, let me think what I was going to say here. I was talking to someone once. When we moved here, I had to you know help a lot of people. I'd been... <coughs> I've been in the business of helping people come onto the path for quite a long time, but it, it, um, I got busier once we got here because it was the only thing I was doing. And I was talking to someone, and I was just, you know, it took me, you get better at tuning into people and understanding what the reality is. The more you do it, the better you get at it. And I was talking to someone, and I, I just suddenly was given um, a very clear both experiential, from inside and above, simultaneously, of my first couple of years on the spiritual path, when I met Swami and became committed and ran to Ananda and just started doing all of that. Everything about me was just a mess. It looked in my mind like spaghetti in a bowl. You know how all this, you, you, if you try to roll up one piece of spaghetti from the bowl, it, it, it's all wound around. It's like my mind and all my emotions and the situations in my life and the decisions I was making, it was just spaghetti, just a terrible mess. And it was a mess. I mean, all through my 20s, it was just one misstep after another and just left, right, and center on one level. 
But at the same time, I could feel that there was just like a steel cable, and it was taut, and then it was in a straight line. And it went right out of my heart and right towards Swami, threw him right into the spiritual path. It was so powerful. It was so clear. It was so straight. But the other side was just a mess. And I appreciated the fact that nothing mattered except that one point. All the rest of it, just let, who cares? Who cares what you're thinking? It doesn't even make a lot of difference what you're doing. You're just trying to sort it out. And like, there's a cartoon you might not be as familiar with, which is Peanuts, the little Peanuts cartoons, remember? Remember Pigpen? And, and Pigpen was always surrounded by a swirling cloud of dust. And I, I have always thought about myself spiritually as a, a kind of a female Pigpen, that there's, you know, I'm, I'm solid in the center of it. And around me goes all this other stuff. And all that is my thoughts and my trying to figure it out, my trying to make my plans and trying to do all these things and this and this and this. And it's just like um, God is not paying any attention to that. <laughs> I'm just entertaining myself. I'm absolutely playing, you know, solitaire for all that it matters. It's, it's that real other part that makes a difference. And after a while... I just stopped doing all that. And, and I just got simpler. Just got a whole lot simpler because I realized it wasn't, there was no forward progress in it. It wasn't even, it was no help. I was just spinning my wheels about things I knew nothing about. I mean, even, you know, we talk about the guru. Because there was a lot of issues. Swami the guru is Yogananda the guru, you know, and this and this. And I just said, I don't, you know, I don't have any idea what this, any of this means. To say that someone is your guru, to, to say that someone has committed to you, you've committed to them, I can, that part I can see, but that they've committed to you and they're actually going to take you to God-realization and they're committed to you incarnation after incarnation. I mean, what do those words mean? Like, like really, what do those words mean? I love the sound of them. But what, what, what is that? I have no idea. So I just deal with the part that I know. And the part that I know is to be cooperatively obedient to everything that I can understand that's being asked of me. And my job is to, to, as clearly as I can, to understand what's being asked of me. And then as well as I can to do it. And the rest of it is like somebody else's problem, actually. Because what could I do about it? You know. So even the thought of too personal, am I focusing on the wrong part? You know, just like, what's being asked of me and can I just keep doing it? And if all of that is not what it should be, well, sooner or later, it'll straighten out, won't it? Because at a certain point, I'll, it'll, I'll notice. I'll fall into a pit and I'll realize what it is and then I'll sort it out. But anticipating with thoughts that are made up anyway. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's why that little poem of Gyanamata's and she was anything but a simple maid, foolish and unheeding. But she, that's how she wanted to, wanted to see herself. That's how she described herself to Master. As soon as I found, as soon as she found him, that was it. She just went there and, and never turned back. And you know, she finished the race. But that is a beautiful image. He comes through that body as much as I come through these letters. I mean, you're holding a letter like this and you're knowing there's a full person somewhere and comparing the letter to the person. That's probably a very apt image. You know, all that... Because she was also, I'm sure, in that letter... See, the thing about the letters is she, of course, was writing to someone specific about a very specific thing and trying to correct their temperament in a certain way. And there was... um, Swamiji actually said... Uh, sometimes the people who are close to Master, they, they would sometimes call him Little Master because he was, a, he was small. And he was, a, a Swami used the word once, Swami once said, he said, I couldn't really put this into any of the books because how could I say this? He said, but Master was adorable. <laughs> he said he was just so, just utterly captivating. And, and adorable, he said, was really the word that would come to your mind because he was just so free and so childlike and, but Swamiji had a very sophisticated perspective. 
And some of the, you know, Marina Linimata, and I don't mean to single her out because I don't know what her relationship is with Master, but she was 13 when she came. Uma Mata met Master when she was 8. Went into the monastery when she was about 12 or 13. And never, you know, and Master didn't, Master didn't write Autobiography of a Yogi till 1946. So some of those who came very young, I mean, they didn't really quite know who they had. They didn't go to India, they didn't know. They just had what they had in front of him, them. And so I'm sure Sister Gyanamata was really trying to correct just this idea that he's our adorable teacher to, to help them realize you have no idea who you're dealing with here. You just have no idea. Which they, they might not have had any idea. I remember in 1971 or two when a French-Canadian television crew came and filmed Swamiji and I'd, I've never, I'd, at that point, I'd never been out of the country. I only speak English. And Swami just sat down and gave a completely cogent interview in French. And, it, you know, it's not so remarkable that he would speak French. A lot of people speak multiple languages. I was very provincial. But what it di- did, did for me, which I never forgot, was don't ever think you know this man. You have no idea. He talks to you in English because you don't know French. But when somebody else is in front of him who speaks French, he just as effortlessly turns into French. I mean, you don't, you don't have any idea what's inside him. And don't ever think that you've got him all figured out like this. You should mix more with Walter, because you don't know what you have in him. Oh, yes, Master... Well, I've just been reading the William and Henry book, Two Souls, Four Lives. And um, I've read it before, and I've heard the story many times. I've heard Swami discuss it. But somehow this time reading it through, it's um, uh, Swami's relationship with Master and his responsibilities with Master in that lifetime and in this one. Um, It... it's, it's way, their lives are way more integrated than um, we, we really realized. You know, Master's mission, uh, Henry, William's, William's mission was done by Henry, and Swami's, Master's mission has been done by Swami. I mean, think about the, um, the reliance, you know, the absolute reliance of Master on Swamiji. You have a great work to do. Every man has disappointed me, and you mustn't disappoint me. His, his master was relying on Swami to make it happen, which, of course, Swami succeeded stupendously in making it happen, just as Henry succeeded in making it happen for William. I mean, in the life of William, he had three sons. Henry was the youngest, and the other two were just complete washouts. I mean, it's just sort of like... Swamiji, and I mean, in the book, they make a, they they try to tell you what was great about these people, but you think, Master, you can be really close to the Guru, and you can still have a lot to work on. I mean, neither neither of the other two sons just had any idea what they were doing. They just made a complete hash of it, and it finally came into Swami's hands, Henry's hands, and then just instantly, like as soon as he had the kingship, he immediately started doing everything that needed to be done. I mean, within a day, when he was, uh, for his coronation, he issued these 14 points, his coronation declaration. And it it described the rights of the people and the duties of a king. Nothing like that had ever been put forward. And it actually became the basis of the Magna Carta, which became the basis of the U.S. Constitution. And when Henry's... uh, the, the king of England, his brother, was accidentally killed in a hunting accident. Henry, the way the medieval times were so wild, he immediately, literally, galloped away to get to the treasury so he could take possession of the treasury and the crown and then engineered his coronation within a day after his brother had died because it was such chaotic times, all of this was necessary. But in the middle of that, he published... These, these 14 points, within, which he then read at his coronation, which was a total and a complete revolution. Just complete. But he just did it like that because he was, he'd had a lot of years to get ready and he knew it was coming. But it changed the course of civilization. And it was, 
neither of the other two sons had a clue. They just caroused around and spent the money and enjoyed themselves and exercised their petty tyranny. And I don't want to draw too fine a point on it, but SRF is building a Catholic church and a monastery and, you know, and they just don't, they don't get it. They don't seem to have a picture of what Master really came to do. And Swami does. And it's not that they're doing, doing a bad work by any means, but if the future of Master's work depended on their vision of it, um, it wouldn't have much of a future. But, so Swami, Swami's pulled it out again. And we're part of it. See, the thing is, this is not a story about somebody distant because uh, Swami's gone, and who's left? And are we done? And is it established? And what's going to happen next? And, you know, these things take a while to get settled. Are we going to just go back to chaos? Or are we just going to let it drop? I mean, so that's why we have to constantly, just constantly pay attention. Just pay attention all the time. What's happening? What's needed now? And we have to um, practice when it's easier. We have to always be trying to understand the implications of where we're standing and where we're going. Um, which we, we were having some of us a discussion about Swami's music and how to relate to it now and creativity in music and creativity in writing and trying to stay loyal but also trying to um, use the energy, loyal to the vision is what I mean, and to the vibration and at the same time use what we've been given because if we're afraid to use what we've been given we'll never accomplish anything. And we'll certainly never accomplish anything great. If we play it safe, what will end up is safe. But not really, because that's just postponing courage. But if we just launch out on our own, we'll have completely missed the point. So, by attunement with the mind of an enlightened being, we can be lifted out of our egos. And what that actually means is, I'm not sure, but let's just keep trying. You feel it. You just feel when you're moving in the flow or when you're moving in yourself. You, you, you just learn what it feels like. When the ego gets involved, you make terrible decisions. <laughs> you begin to see it. Okay, any other thoughts or questions? Sarah? Uh, I got rescued from being towed away. Uh, we were having... Um, the, the uh, street in front of where I live worked on and somehow I missed the fact that I was not supposed to park uh-huh. in the street and I, this was yesterday and I finished, just finished meditating and all of a sudden the phone rang and it was the Mountain View police saying you must move your car right now because you're in a construction zone and I ran out and did it and I thought Sarah, you were being taken care of. Look at the timing. Mm-hmm. And I got saved from uh, who knows how many hundreds of dollars. I mean, it's a, it's a little thing, but it isn't a little thing. No, it isn't a little thing. No, it was, it was like, wowee. Everything is like that. Yeah, yeah. that was kind of spectacular. <laughs> Very good. Any other comments or thoughts? If not, we're going to call it a quits because otherwise we're going to go into another sutra and we don't really have time to finish it. Okay? All right, great souls. So that brings us next week. We will start at number 38.